0: So if you find Luke chapter 14, it's also going to be on the screen, but it's great if you have it in front of you so you can refer to it during the talk as well. Uh, In this passage, we'll see how Jesus brings up some things which cause division, uh, and he suggests division maybe even amongst families. So we'll read this together, and then Rowan's going to share and explain what some of this means. I'm going to start at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it for he lays the foundation for if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying this fellow began to build and he was not able to finish or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king will he not first sit down to consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything has, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear let me pray for ron our lord please send your spirit on us now and particularly on Rowan as he shares your words i pray that you will help him to speak clearly and i pray that we will be ready to listen amen
1: great to see you here at the eu public meeting can you hear me up the back hello one two is that working Not very well. I'll use this as well. We can divide humanity in all sorts of different ways. If your task was to petition the human race, you could do it in lots of ways, some of which we even tried here in that little game we played, most of which are trivial. Whether you like Coke or Pepsi, that might divide sort of the rich Western part of the world. Whether you like Mac or PC, an even smaller section of humanity would probably even have an opinion about that. There's all sorts of trivial ways. Whether you're left-handed or right-handed would be a trivial way we could divide every single human being on the planet. There are some ways we could divide people of more significance. What about if we took the sort of accepted international poverty line and then worked out whether each person who lived on the planet was above that line or tragically below that line. That would be a way of partitioning the human race which might have some real significance for how then we want to respond as God creatures in His world. But the one thing that the New Testament says very clearly is that there is one particular way of dividing the human race that is more fundamental than any other. It's more fundamental than your gender, more fundamental than your left or right-handedness, more fundamental than whether you're above or below the poverty line. And that's all got to do with the historical person of Jesus. And the division goes something like this. The choice that the New Testament gives you is you are either pro-Jesus or anti-God. Now, I've worded that deliberately because I think that captures the message of the New Testament. You're either pro-Jesus or anti-God. And you might say, well, hang on, couldn't I be, you know, anti-Jesus but pro-God? Well, the New Testament says no, you can't. In fact, uh, Jesus himself, recorded in the New Testament, in several places says things like this, no one can truly honour the Father, the one true living God, no one can truly honour God unless you have the Son. So, if you don't have Jesus, you are not actually honouring the one true living God. Other places he says, I am the only way to the Father, to the one true living God. So, the division that's painted in the New Testament is you're either pro-Jesus, in which case, yes, you're pro the one true living God, or you're anti-God because you've rejected the one he sent. That's the very stark choice that the New Testament paints. That is an incredibly divisive I guess, statement to make about this person of Jesus. And so what we're thinking about today is this topic of divisive Jesus. We're in this section of Luke's Gospel that I explained last week called the travel narrative. Luke is on his way, sorry, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, He knows when he gets to Jerusalem he's going to die, but he believes God, the one true living God, is going to raise him to life again. And along the way, which starts in chapter 9, verse 51... He gets to Jerusalem about chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel. Along the way, Jesus is busy talking about the Kingdom of God and what it means to be a person who belongs to the Kingdom of God. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's talking about discipleship. Last week, we saw that a critical aspect of discipleship is humility. This week, what we're learning is that if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, that it is inevitable that that will cause division. inevitable if you're going to be a disciple of jesus it will cause division so we want to explore that a little bit today so what we're going to do is i'm going to look very briefly at just four different passages in this travel narrative where jesus talks to this theme we're going to draw them together and build up a bit of a picture to understand the divisive nature of being a follower of jesus so the first passage that's up there on the board you can see the first heading is that division because of jesus is to be expected it's to be expected and we're going to look here at Jesus' own personal calling from Luke chapter 12. So, you've got your Bible there. We'll look on with the person next to you. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Let me read this little section to you. This is Jesus speaking as recorded by Luke. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, remember I said that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and I think that you get that message from the first couple of verses here in this little section. Notice Jesus says two things in verses 49 and 50. He says, I've come to bring fire on the earth. Fire is a picture of judgment from the Old Testament. So, I've come to bring judgment to the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under till it is completed. What's the baptism he's talking about? He's already been baptised by John the Baptist. We know that from earlier in the Gospel. I think what's happening here is Jesus is looking forward to Jerusalem and to his death there, his death on a cross, and he's talking about that reality in two ways. I've come to bring judgment and I've come to undergo a baptism. The baptism he's talking about is his own baptism of death. He's looking at the cross. He knows what is in store for him under God's hand and he knows that his own death is necessary and he knows that his own death will be the thing that highlights God's judgment because how you respond to Jesus reveals whether you are pro or anti-God. Jesus knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected. That's going to reveal that God's own people are actually anti-God because they've rejected the one God sent. And that will be the cause, tragically, for divine judgment upon them. If you like, you remember high school chemistry where you would get a big beaker full of clear liquid and you would know not to drink this liquid because who knows what it could be? So what you would do is you would get an indicator. Do you remember this? And you would drop the indicator into the beaker and what would happen? It would change colour, wouldn't it? To show you what was the nature of the liquid, whether it was acidic or alkaline. Yes, it's been a long time since you heard those words, I know. (laughs) Right? Or you get the litmus paper. Do you remember? And you could drop the litmus paper and it would change colour depending on what sort of liquid it was Jesus is the litmus paper Jesus is the indicator that reveals the human heart whether you are pro-God or anti-God in how you respond to him or if the chemistry thing is leaving you cold and giving you sort of bad flashbacks if you like Jesus is the light that shines into the dark recesses of the human heart or Jesus is the loud voice calling out to society where either people flock to him because what he says warms their heart or what he says makes them stand up, shake their fist and walk away in outrage. Jesus is divisive. He's the bifurcation point. He's the split. He's the one that divides. He's the in how you respond to Jesus, that shows how you respond to God. Now, notice what Jesus says here. He says, This isn't just a fact. He says, This is actually part of God's purpose. This was actually part of God's intention that Jesus would reveal the human heart, that he would bifurcate people, partition them, reveal whether they are pro God or anti God. That's why division because of Jesus is to be expected. You notice here what Jesus says. It's going to affect us not just at a level of society or, say, this university, but it's going to affect us at the most intimate and personal levels, the family. So he can say there, from now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. And then he goes through some sample relationships. The picture Jesus has is a family of five people where there's a mum and there's a dad and there's a daughter there's a son and there's the son's wife. Because in those days when you, if you're a bloke and you married somebody, you brought her into your family home. Oh, joy of joys, if you were a woman, you got to live with your mother-in-law. And that's why Jesus can then articulate the sort of division that comes into this most intimate of scenes, a family of five. He says, Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's going to completely cleave this tight family of five. Jesus himself. Now, just out of interest, who here comes from a family where all the people in your immediate family are followers of Jesus? Put your hand up if you come from a, a, a very blessed situation. Great. Let's flip that now. Put your hand up if you call yourself a follower of Jesus but there are people in your family who would not say that they are a follower of Jesus. Put your hand up. Right. Now look around. If you come from a family where everyone's a believer, you look around. Right? You, you, this is not an abstract reality, is it? We are talking about something that many in this room here today live with on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. Jesus brings division. And you know what? Division is never easy. Division in a family is hard. It's painful, stressful. So, that's why we want to understand this because what Jesus is saying here is division is to be expected if you are my disciple. So, we want to understand more about why this is and what we should think about it. Okay, so let's move on then from that uh, division is just to be expected. Notice then, next point, division because of Jesus is necessary. Necessary. We're going to look here at jesus challenge uh two passages so you've got your bible open let's flick to luke chapter 9 verse 57 this is coming right at the beginning of the travel narrative right the section where jesus just in verse 51 set his face to head towards jerusalem and right up front we get this little episode which is all about discipleship which really reveals that this is where we are right at a central theme of jesus teaching as he heads towards Jerusalem. So, 957, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I've just said this is coming at the beginning of the travel narrative, right? Where is Jesus going? To Jerusalem. What does Jesus know is going to happen when he gets there? He's going to be crucified. This guy, super keen i'll follow you jesus wherever you go look at jesus response jesus replied foxes have holes and birds have nests but the son of man his nickname for himself has nowhere to lay his head so is he just saying well you know i'm sleeping rough i've got nowhere i've got nowhere to stay so i'm on my way to jerusalem if you're going to follow me just i hope you've got a good sleeping bag because we're sleeping outdoors is that, is that what Jesus is saying? No. Why does he have nowhere to sleep? Well, have a look just at the paragraph before, the beginning of the travel narrative. Notice what, he said, what just happens. 9.51, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Jesus is going to come and stay and preach the gospel in this village. But the people there did not welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. He had nowhere to stay. Why? Because they, they rejected him. So Jesus saying to this guy, not, I hope you've got a good sleeping bag. He's saying, I hope you're ready to embrace rejection because I have nowhere to stay. I am rejected. You want it? You're keen to follow me? It's going to mean embracing rejection. Let's look at what the second person says. 959. Jesus said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, I mean, it's not exactly clear exactly the situation that's going on here. Two two possibilities. Either his father is ill, sort of near death, near the end of his life, and, and this guy saying, Look, just let me sort of hang around. I will follow you, Jesus, but I need to just hang around. Fulfill my obligations to my family, look after my elderly parents, wait for him to sort of pass on, which, and then I will come for you. Which sounds very reasonable, right? In fact, isn't that an important part of honouring your parents, that you care for them if they need it? It could also be that actually because of the burial customs of the day, what used to happen is if someone passed away, what they, you would put them in a tomb, that would be their primary and first burial, but then you would leave them in the tomb for a year that was the period of mourning and after the year was over you would go back the body would have decomposed and you collect the bones together and put them into what's called an ossuary a bone box and that's the secondary burial and so the two burials bracket the period of mourning it could be that this bloke is saying my dad is already dead and he's in the tomb so just just wait until I've done this, the you know collected the bones put done the secondary burial then of course i'll come follow you again it's part of his responsibility to his family but notice what jesus says luke chapter 9 verse 60 one one commentator says on this this is probably this maybe is the sharpest that is most rude thing jesus ever said that we have recorded for us jesus said let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the Kingdom of God. So, either he's saying, your dad who's near death, let the spiritually dead, those who do not understand what I'm asking you to do, those who don't understand me and don't understand the Kingdom of God, let the spiritually dead deal with that, you've got something more important to do. Or he could be saying, if, his father is already lying in the tomb and he's just waiting for the secondary burial. He could be saying he's in the tomb with a bunch of other dead bodies. Let the dead bury the dead. You've got something more important to do. Either way, it cuts across every notion of respect, every custom, every sort of pious act towards an either ill or passed away father. And Jesus says, let the dead look after that. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There is a responsibility that trumps all other responsibilities. Devotion to Jesus, following Jesus, trumps every responsibility. Can you think of a responsibility that has more weight than showing respect to your parent? Jesus says, no, even that. Following me trumps every responsibility. I think it's interesting that Jesus says, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God because in the kingdom, of, the kingdom of God is what brings life, isn't it, to the dead. And as Jesus has gone around proclaiming the kingdom of God, he's even raised, literally raised dead people back to life again, like the widow's son at name. He said, you go and you get into the business of giving life because that trumps every responsibility, even amongst your family." You can see that that would cause division, can't you? How would his family, this guy's family, have reacted? What? You're not going to stay and pay respect, like deal with your father, respect? You're going to just follow this Jesus? Jesus says that's the right thing to do if you understand who I am. The third interaction here, still another said, verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Well, that's pretty reasonable too, isn't it? Like, if, yeah, I'll come with you, Jesus, no worries. I'll just go and say goodbye to my family. Now, I think what happens here is Jesus hears this and goes, wow, um, I've heard that before reading my Old Testament. I know someone else in the Old Testament who, made that, who, who had that same request. Because the answer that Jesus gives is very, is sort of, alludes back to this other incident. So you've got to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, to understand Jesus' response. 1 Kings 19, verse 19. Elijah was a prophet amongst the people of God. Elijah is looking for an understudy, some sort of ministry trainee, some Howie, some person to sort of learn how to be the prophet of God. He wants to come up and he wants to get hold of Elisha. So, let's read what happened. So, 1 Kings 19. So, Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Sort of, that's the equivalent of a tap on the shoulder, right? Throw the cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen, ran after Elijah let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Sounds similar to what we just read? Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his 12 yoke of oxen, slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate a pretty big barbecue. Being 12, 12 yoke of oxen, 12 oxen, like... Was that 24 oxen? That, that's a lot of oxen. That's a big barbecue. Then he set out to follow Elijah became his servant, right? Elijah's response was, sure, okay, well, what have I done to you? Go back, say goodbye, come... What's Jesus' response? Flick back to Luke 9. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You can imagine the situation with Elijah and Elisha, right? Elisha's there, cracking the wood, driving the plow. Elijah walks up, throws his cloaks over him, and I reckon Elisha would have had to turn around. Because it seems, because then we really had to run off after him, right? He probably had to turn around and look and go, what was that? And Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You, You do what Elisha does. The great prophet Elisha. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. This requires single-minded focus. That is what he's saying is, following me, being my disciple, relativizes every other relationship, even your families. It's pretty extreme, isn't it? This is not, you know, chilled out, relaxed, enjoy life Jesus. This is Jesus urgent. This is Jesus pressing. This is Jesus, this is the most important thing. So, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be ready to embrace rejection. You've got to get ready because this is going to trump every other responsibility you have and this is going to relativize every relationship you have. Your family, your boyfriend, your girlfriend even your children, if you have them one day. It's pretty hardcore stuff, isn't it? Why is he so extreme? Well, remember, if how you respond to Jesus reveals how you respond to the one true living God. If you or I, like if you came up to me and said, I need to be number one in your life, such that I'm more important to you than family, more important to you than any responsibility, I go, you're just cuckoo, right? You're just nuts, right? You you are just not that important. Not to me or frankly to anyone. (laughs) You're not. Because if if my wife came to me and said, I need to be number one in your life above all else, I need to trump all your responsibilities and every other relationship you could possibly have, I would say, well, no, what about Jesus? (laughs) Jesus is number one, isn't he? Even over my wife, it's more important that my wife loved Jesus than she loved me. What would happen if um if you do do this little thought experiment with me? What would happen if imagine that Jesus walked in the door, right right now? I mean, in a way, it's actually not too weird because isn't He always with us by His Spirit? Isn't He therefore with us now? But imagine Jesus appeared in his resurrection body in front of us and said, I'm so glad that you're all at the EU public meeting today. It's fantastic. I want you all to come with me now. I've decided to do a bit of a mission tour. It will probably take a while. Time's a push. Let's go. Some of you are probably going, Woo! Yeah! Yeah! Let's go!
0: Awesome! (laughs) Right?
1: And would Jesus need to turn around and say, "You, You do know that you're going to need to embrace rejection, right? You're going to be hated because of me. Don't let your naive, sort of adventurous youthful exuberance actually cloud the reality that you should expect to be hated, rejected. I'm going to be killed. Or would you be going, well, Jesus, I mean, um, that's awesome. (laughs) Chance to follow you, that's great. Uh, But, you know, we, we will be back sort of by my shift on Monday night, right? My work. Because like, if, I, if I don't turn up to work, you know, for a couple of days, I'll, I'll lose my job. And um, that job is pretty key because I'm, I'm going to hopefully do a cadetship with them over the summer. And, you know, that's pretty much how I'm going to get a job next year in the job market. Like, I can't skip too much work, Jesus. I just, you know, I have responsibilities. I mean, you've got to make sure we're back in time for me to get my assessments in, Right. Because I'd hate to follow you, Jesus, and I'm sure that'd be great and awesome. But then, if, if as a consequence I sort of am a not show at uni and I fail uni, and what am I? Uh, how's that going to work? Like, or you be sitting there going, oh, what a! This is fantastic, Jesus. I'll just text my family to tell them I won't be home," and Jesus says, "No time for texting. You need to come now. Come on, Jesus. I just can't tell my." I'm just saying goodbye to my family. No time. Are you with me? Jesus says, you're going to be my disciple. You've got to embrace rejection. It's going to trump all your other relationships, all your other responsibilities. Now, what does this mean for you and me? Does this mean that you you need to not go home? today does it mean you need to cut off relationship with your family does it mean that you shouldn't turn up to work on the weekend like what do you notice here in this story that we're not told the reaction of any of the three people we don't know what any of those three people did did they go okay i'm with you or did they actually not we don't know and that's deliberate because i think it's meant to say it's deliberately posing the question to you what if this were you are you prepared to follow Jesus to this extent. Now, we have to take the truth of that and apply that into the details of each of our individual lives and situations. I don't know what that will mean for you this week, but I do know this. It means you must be prepared to embrace rejection. You must let your discipleship of Jesus trump all your other responsibilities and it must mean that it, you let it relativise all your other relationships and that will look like something. Something. Now, what Jesus then does is he um, digs down deeper into that challenge of particularly how that affects families uh, in that passage that we read out at the beginning, that Matt read for us, Luke 14. If you quickly flick there, Luke 14, 25 to 35, you'll notice at this point as Jesus travels to Jerusalem, verse 25, large crowds were travelling with Jesus. So you think, it must be going well for Jesus. He's got big crowds now following him. It must be going well, but Jesus seems to be worried about it because rather than going, awesome, my Facebook sort of friend number is going up, he culls a whole lot of them. He turns around and says, are you sure? (laughs) And notice what he says. Turning to them, Jesus said, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple there's one of those situations where you've got to go whenever you're reading the bible right you're reading one particular verse you must always read it in the light of the rest of the truths of the bible you pick one verse only you're liable to get it wrong right because we believe that the one true living god stands behind this one word and therefore it it speaks a coherent and consistent truth so i read this verse if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, I have to interpret that in the light of everything else that the New Testament says. Because is that really saying, Rowan, you can't be my disciple unless you hate Jenny, unless you hate your five children? I mean, that's what a literal reading of that. You've got to apply your brain to it. You've got to think, well, what's he saying? Now, we know from elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, we know that Jesus says, you actually must love your neighbour as yourself. Two great commands. Love God and love your neighbour. And in Luke 6, we know that Jesus says, you have to even love your enemy. So what, I'm meant to love my enemy but hate my wife? Is that what he's saying? No, he's talking comparative language. It's the same sort of message we heard before, that devotion or discipleship of Jesus relativizes your other relationships. He says, your devotion and the priority you give following me... It's as though you hated your family because you put me number one. Because in those days, what is the top priority that anyone would have? Well, even today, it's, it's usually the family unit. And if you were going to put anything else as number one, people will say, you hate your family. And Jesus is saying, yes, you need to put me number one. Yes, yes that, will, that will be perceived even as hatred, maybe even by your family. And maybe some of you know about that truth that your parents say, if you really loved me, you would do what I ask you to do. You would not go on those camps. You would work that job. You will not pursue that sort of ministry. You will pursue that sort of career. If you really loved me, if you cared about our family, if you didn't want to bring me shame. Jesus knows about that. He knew it would be like. So, Jesus is not saying, hate your family. He's saying, love me, follow me, be devoted to me. And I think that's because often we try to do it like this. We try... We try to do it like this. Here's my heart and here's my handbag.
0: Okay.
1: And so what we say is, well, I love my family. I meant to love my family, but I want to be a follower of Jesus, so I'll add Jesus as an accessory to my life, my faith in Jesus. Jesus says, "You want to live like that? You can't be my disciple." And we say, "Oh, that's okay, Jesus, because my heart is big. So what I will do is, I will love my family." and I will love you. Jesus says you can't hold on to both. You cannot be my disciple unless your love for me makes it seem as though even you hate your family. You can't be my disciple that way. What Jesus says is you need to love me first and foremost. What about family then? Well, I think what the the picture of Jesus teaching is that because you love Jesus, therefore that gets expressed in loving your family, loving your neighbour, even loving your enemy. Do you see the difference? It doesn't mean that I hate my wife Jenny and my five kids. It means because I am devoted to Jesus, I am committed to sacrificially loving my wife Jenny like Jesus loved us, even to death. That rather than trying to do power plays over the lives of my children, I actually seek to serve them with wisdom and discipline and gentleness. Love for Jesus transforms the love for my family. It expresses it. But it's clear who is at the centre. Okay, let's uh, finally move on. We've we've explored this a little bit, but there's one other thing that Jesus says about division and families that is really important, particularly if you are somebody who knows this firsthand. That is, Jesus also has a word of comfort to those who experience this division. So let's uh, move also the division because of Jesus is worth it because of Jesus' word of comfort. Jesus' word of comfort is in Luke 18 here. 18 to 30. Now, it's, it's quite a long uh, episode. We're not going to read it all. You're going to focus right at the end. The episode is actually about a guy who has a lot of money, uh, who comes to Jesus, talks about what he has to do to inherit eternal life, to be part of the kingdom of God, to be your follower, all equivalent sort of ways of talking. Jesus says, What you need to do is sell all your possessions and come follow me. So, for this guy, it's not family at the heart, this guy has money at the heart. And Jesus says, Well, You can't have money at the heart and be my disciple. You can't even split yourself between me and money. No, you have to have me at number one. Well, then what about money? Maybe, maybe it's like family. Maybe, because I love Jesus. I now express that love for Jesus in my love for my money. (laughs) Alas, no, you need to actually read what Jesus says. But Jesus actually says, no, the answer for money is give it away. Sell all your possessions. Extreme generosity is what love for Jesus looks like with money. But we'll talk about that in a few weeks' time when we do some more on Jesus and money. I want to focus right at the end for this word of comfort. Verse 28. Peter, one of the people who has left everything and followed him, says, We have left all we had to follow you. Here's Jesus' word of comfort. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So in the age you follow Jesus, yes that's caused great division and pain now maybe in your family but he says in the age to come eternal life, it's worth it. But he also says along the way you'll receive many times as much in this age. What? Many times more wives? (laughs) Many times more parents? But what's he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about the family of believers. He's saying you've experienced incredible division in your biological family because of me. You'll receive many times more in this age in the brothers and sisters and and mothers and children that you have in the family of God. That's great comfort. You are not alone. You have Jesus and all these brothers and sisters. It's great comfort, but there is a little bit of a challenge wrapped around the back of it, isn't there? Because you think, yeah, when people turn up to church or your Bible study group or the EU public meeting or any Christian gathering, you are not just there for you, are you? You're there as a brother and sister and potentially, as we saw even here today, people who have real division at home amongst their biological family. They need to feel a new home amongst God's people. Jesus says that's the intention. So, there's great comfort there and a challenge for us to be the people Jesus asks us to be as we follow him along the road. So I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to be our servant, our King, our Saviour, our Lord. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to embrace rejection because of him, that we might allow our devotion to him trump all our other responsibilities, that we would allow it to relativise and transform all of our relationships. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be the people, the brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus that you've created us to be, so we might not only bring the comfort you intend to one another, but that so that we might present your truth in word and in life to the world that so desperately needs you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Look forward to seeing you next week when we talk about love and forgiveness. Uh, Please hand in your Connect cards on the way out. Hope you're doing a GIE course. If you haven't done getting into a van quick, write GIE on there, do that. See you at Afternoon Tea. Have a great day.